Series 5 was recorded in March 2021 over the internet. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to a special series of the Rural Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt of Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. For 65 years, the Rural Court Theatre in London has led the world in the production of new plays and the discovery and championing of new playwrights. The Stucker Market of the Theatre Treffen is an annual gathering of new writers and theatre makers. Every year since 1978, writers are chosen by Stucker Market jurors from hundreds of applications to visit Berlin and perform, talk about and celebrate their work. With the 2019 Stuckermark, the competition was launched for the first time worldwide. In this short series of podcasts, the Royal Court Theatre and the Stuckermark collaborate for the first time. This year, as Berlin, like the rest of the world, manages the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, the six writers whose work has been chosen will be discussing their work in this special series of five hour-long online conversations. It is indicative of my ignorance that I knew nothing of the work of Quebecois musician, artist, director, actor and writer Laurence Dauphiné until starting work on this conversation. An ignorance only underlined by the range and success of her work, not only in Montreal where she lives and works, but throughout the world. Her body of work is defined by its diversity. She was a graduate of the National Theatre School of Canada's acting programme and has acted with success on television, in film and on stage alike. She toured solo work internationally, her shows I Show and Siri, travelling throughout Europe and South America. She's written and directed Lumen's Game, a generative music and video piece created by Video Phase, has made soulful new electronic music with the Montreal collective Derek, and is in the process of making her latest co-creation with Maxime Cabano in the cloud. Her beautiful piece of documentary drama, Alapi, which has been chosen for the 2021 Stuck Market, was her debut as solo director. It premiered at the Centre de Théâtre d'Aujourd'hui, CTDA in Montreal, where it won the 2020 Playwrights Prize. Alapi depicts a marginalized group that is hardly ever given a voice in contemporary drama, the Inuit. Dauphiné works in collaboration with radio director Marie-Laurence Rancourt and the two performers Nancy Saunders and Olivia Uveluk to create a piece that synthesizes recorded testimony, hypernaturalistic drama and elegant poised projection art. It is a haunting study of the humanness and persistence of Inuit culture as it spans the range of Canada and Quebec from the urban energy of Montreal to the coldest, most battered parts of isolation within the Arctic Circle. It's quiet poetry, imagery and sound felt defined by its humanness. Its cascade of text crystallizes the complexity of a multilingual culture and the yearning and impossibility of ever finding the right word. In its study of two performers contained within an isolated home, I was surprised to see images of the lockdowns of the last year resonating. In its meteorological brutality, it evoked images of climate instability that linger around the edges of so much of our imagination. But in its wit and honesty, restraint and humanity, it is built with as much compassion for the community it documents as it reaches out into metaphors that resonate throughout the world. Laurence Dauphiné, welcome to the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast. 
and welcome Thank to the you. Stoked Mart. Oh yeah, I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> what a real, real pleasure to to meet you and uh, to Same meet here, you Simon. as well. The uh, me and Anushka, producer Anushka, who's very famous on the Royal Court Playwright podcast, had a big chat this morning about how into your music uh, we are. And believe me, <laughs> if she compliments the, your your clothing as she does in the video for Across the Universe, if you get a compliment about your clothes from Anushka, you're I, that's right. <laughs> okay, yes, <laughs> that's good. Oh man, I don't I don't feel good about my clothes every day, but today's a special day. <laughs> the, um, I, I always um, start these conversations when I'm doing them just for the Royal Court uh, with the same question, and I've decided to keep the question for these conversations with Stuckmark, um, which is, when was the first time that you went to the theatre? Wow! Oh, my God, I love that question. Um, first time I went to the theatre... Uh, it, it must have been as a child, but it's a little blurry. Uh, I was lucky enough to, you know, to go to the theater with with school. Uh, Where but did you like go to school was that in Montreal? Were you, yeah. you were raised in Montreal? Yeah. Yes, I was raised in Montreal, but my parents were really. I mean, my my mom uh, was trained as an actress, and she was an acting coach for young actors, um, a big theater fan. So they brought me to the theater. So, like my the first time, I think it was the Fourberie de Scapin. Uh, but I think uh, by Moliere, but I think I was so young that I just kept kicking the bench in front of me. And there was a very famous director sitting in front. My mom was so embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> I quite like that. that yeah. Even before you knew it, you were kicking the establishment. <laughs> That's so good. I never saw it that way, but you're a little right. Um, and then uh, I, I guess that the, the first real time that I really remember uh, was when I saw Cyrano de Bergerac in Montreal, directed by Alice Ronfard. It was played by Guinadon, who's a very important actor here, who taught me later when I was at the National Theatre School. And uh, I was just blown away, of course. Mm. And, you know, we were sitting first row with my parents. And uh, it's, yeah, it's those kind of defining moments. And it's funny because... Um, when I was in theater school, all I could imagine was acting in classics. It's, it's all I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to, I could have acted in Racine plays for, for till I died. Uh, but then it's not what happened at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the only classical play I've ever acted in was in English. It was, um, it was As You Like It by Shakespeare, uh, just after I graduated from theater school, it was like Shakespeare in the park. So we were traveling from parks to parks. Um, it's the only time I did. In French, I never acted in any classics, just creation work. Wow. The, um, when, um, I'm, I've never been to Montreal. I've never been to Quebec. I've been only to Toronto in Canada, which always feels like a kind of strange offshoot of New York in some way, or did With when I was there. Stuff. <laughs> with less stuff, yeah. But I, I'm fascinated. Were you, were you raised completely bilingual in both English and French alike? Uh, oh, no, not no. at all. So how, um, does it, how did it work for you? What Were you raised in French? Yeah, I was completely raised in French. My, my parents don't speak English. Right. Um, I'm barely. I actually, you know, when I was really young, we, we'd go to uh, the American uh, East Coast, for the holidays, you know, mm. and I'd wake up at the border just to laugh at my parents' English. 
that's great. <laughs> I think laughing at your parents is always a healthy thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know I was awful in English. My I actually like had nightmares uh, about English because uh, in, in, you know, in an elementary school or uh, schools like um, the English teachers, they speak to you in French when you don't get it. So, you know, right. um, but then when you switch to high school, they don't anymore. It's uh, you, you need to <laughs> you need to get your shit together. Wow. So I actually I, I wasn't really scared of going to high school. I was scared of the English lessons in high school. I didn't know how I would I would get by. And uh, somehow I, 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 I never failed, I, but I really don't understand how that happened. And then eventually, you know, uh, <laughs> puberty came and I fell in love with uh, Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. And I was uh, <laughs> really going to marry him. So I had to learn his language. It was yeah, the, of course, you know, the it's important. I hope he yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure he does. So I started being extremely diligent, uh, learning, you know, like l reading all the lyrics and searching in the dictionary and practicing that way, coming to my high school teacher, asking weird questions about weird <laughs> song lyrics that meant nothing at all. Um, so that's how it all started. And then later on, I was like, well, you know, English feels a little bit because you, you, you were talking about the insular uh, theater culture. Yeah. Uh, that is London. But, you know, I feel like Quebec as a whole is a is an island. It's an island right. in North America. It's a really yeah. insular cu culture, which has such a, like it has positive aspects, of course, but it has some negative ones. And yeah. I felt like uh, like English could really be a passport for me uh, for, you know, as to to be open to the rest of the world. Right. And um, and I wanted to maybe work in English even. So I started taking dialect lessons and. Uh, I got really, really serious about it. And then eventually that's, yeah. So you, you, you hear, you hear me now. <laughs> it's, re it's really fascinating to me and really, I mean, I wish I'd seen, uh, been able to see Alapi uh, live. I wish I'd been able to go to Berlin to watch it live. But oh, me uh, too. Even, even watching the film of it last night, one of the things which I found really haunting was this multiplicity of different languages, not just English and French, right? But um uh, First Nation languages as well percolating in there. And um, I, I just thought there was something profoundly beautiful about that. I it's interesting that that's deep in, deep in the mindset of Quebecois culture from childhood, perhaps. The, um, did you always want to act? Um, it came early because, as I said, you know, my mom was, was an actress and was an acting coach. So, um, and I... I, I loved school, but I wasn't really happy uh, around my contemporaries as a right. child. I was right. I wanted to be with adults all the time. So right. whenever I could, uh, I would go see my mom at work. And um, mm. that was usually, you know, on set. So yeah. I, I wanted to be a part of it. But when uh, when my mom got an offer, actually, um, for, for me to audition for, for a new show, she said no. Because she um, she was working every day with young children that were being bullied because they were acting, and she right. didn't want that for me. But you know, uh, the network got kind of insulted. They were like, "At, at least talk to your daughter about it," which she did. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I was like, "Yeah, I want to do it." So that's how it started. And did you take the child actor's job with your with your? Was she act, was she working on the show as an actor? 
No, she was working on the show as, as a coach and she became my coach because I got the job. <laughs> you said yes, despite your mum resisting you. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, with, um, uh, a lot of kind of child actors, um, you know, in, in the UK, cinematic, theatrical, televisual history, a lot of people who start off as child actors kind of like fall by the wayside and they don't pursue it into adulthood. What was it about acting that you kind of fell in love with? Presumably there was something about it that really grabbed your imagination and kept you motivated, right? Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I, I wasn't a very well adjusted person. <laughs> you know, I, I they're I always the best. They're always the best. <laughs> Never trust the well-adjusted ones. <laughs> they're the re- they're the ones you really got to be frightened of. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess that it, it gave me the sort of alternative life that I really liked. I like to be, like I said, surrounded by adults on set. I like to I like to um, study characters and and learn lines and have this yeah alternative life. I was a very hypersensitive kid and. Um, I saw problems in everything. And uh, I think that the, the fact that I was studying humanity and studying human beings made me feel better. I was a really empathetic child. So it was kind of a natural, natural thing for me. But then what kept me into it with time, because I found a lot of frustrations in acting uh, and acting for, for TV and film as well. Um, I felt that it was limiting uh, very often they're kind of, well, I, I can only talk for what I experienced, of course, but yeah. uh, they were kind of anti-intellectual um, little societies mm. that, so, you know, sometimes I would bring a book on, on set and I would, uh, people would make fun of me, <laughs> like as if I wanted to show off that I, right. I read, right. um, you know, I was also, <clears throat> doing things that I didn't really believe in or uh, saying lines that I didn't think were really good. And there we were rewriting everything with the directors the morning of. And I was like, um, and trying also to fit the mold body wise, you know, for women, it's extremely stressful. Uh, You always see the same kind of bodies on TV all the time. And then, so as a young actress, you try to fit the mold. So you're always trying to lose weight always constantly feeling bad about yourself. Mm. And, uh, and I have conversations with actresses today all the time about those things. And at some point I was like, I chose the arts to be freer, but now this is making me a prisoner. And um, I don't think I really, I really in- enjoy this. This is, not my, this is not what I want to choose for myself. And um, what made me go to theater school was I think, a, a feeling for a desire for depth. Like I wanted to explore a little, a little more. I wanted to go, yeah, dig deeper into the craft. Uh, I felt like an imposter a little bit uh, saying, yeah, I'm an actress, but having had no training at all. So, so yeah, I went, but then I discovered creation in school slowly because really literally for the most part, I had no idea. And like I said, I wanted to be an actress and I wanted to you know, play Hasin and all of that. But slowly in school, they gave us opportunities to to touch creation projects and to do our own thing. And um, and I discovered slowly that it's really what I wanted to do. And it answered, yeah, everything that I was lacking. 
It's so, well, it's, it's a, a really compelling story of somebody trying to find and succeeding and finding their agency. What's uh, fascinating is that that uh, noun creation, I've never heard used in that way. Oh. I guess it's really, but I really love it. I kind of really, I think it's really beautiful. I guess it's it, theatre making is might be what we would say, or oh. making new work, or writing new work. Were you writing yeah. at all? Were you writing, or were you? Was it stuff that you were improvising, or how were you creating that work when you were in in, in acting school? What so, was the process then? <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't writing. Mm. Yeah, creation comes here. We say théâtre de création. So okay. that's Which why is like it's like new work. New, exactly. Yeah. yeah. New work. Yeah. Um, it, basically, it's really weird because when um, before going to the National Theatre School, I went to Concordia University for a couple of years in theatre and music. And I met this this man, Jordan Deacher, who was doing some explorations around artificial intelligence and emotions. And so he started involving me in this started plugging me on sensors and you know we were working with Mitchell Benavoy who, would who was a student in engineering at McGill University uh, at the time and uh, and we were doing yeah all these experiments and he wanted to, de to develop a device an AI device that would be able to read emotion in real time and kind of uh, create this um, visual weather of, of like so your own visual weather so what look like in real time what your emotions look like in real time wow um and so basically my first kind of creation project in school was with jordan and we uh we wrote this story it was a very simple personal story of mine but i was plugged to the sensors and uh i was moving around the room and there were scrims and ev um, every time i needed to recreate the original <laughs> emotional state that I had when I first recorded it for an image to appear uh, on the screens. So it was like, uh, yeah, me going around the room and trying to, yeah, recreate this kind of, uh, oh my God, it's hard to explain in English, but the intensity of the emotion that I had right. when, and, and then, yeah, and then the audience could see an image that would relate to that. And this so, was just um, something you were experiencing internally. You were just you were, you were recapturing the emotion internally and yeah. creating images out of your feelings. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's kind of mind blowing. It, it was it was fun. It was fun. I mean, I mean, I was really lucky to meet with Jordan, who opened me to you know this this whole world of AI, basically, yeah. and what we could do with AI in performance. Yeah. And um, and yeah, and then you know. That encounter led to other encounters. Uh, I met with Aaron G, who's a young artist who also built robots, uh, <laughs> robots who also uh, can read your emotions and will make music based on your emotions and all, all sorts of things. So my, I guess that my first explorations were really, really based on technology. Um, and, and it's kind of how I started in the, in the, in the world of theater making. It was yeah. through explorations with technology. It's so fascinating. The first show that uh, that we toured that you mentioned, I Show, mm. that was a collective piece. And uh, we were exploring the dramaturgy behind social networks. So we were 15 people with our laptops on, online on stage. And uh, we, uh, we were basically talking to people on chat roulette uh, on the stage and involving them. 
in, in different things and ex yeah, exploring intimacy through virtuality. And that was, that was <laughs> the performance. Um, awesome. And it, yeah, it worked quite well. It was really, really strong. I think to see such a body of people on stage, um, but behind screens and the community wow. that was being built with all of these people, it was, uh, but uh, for people, it was quite shocking and sad. And for others, it was, it was fascinating. So it depends. Shocking uh, and sad because of the, what was shocking or sad about it? Well, I think that for, for maybe certain people and we like with technology, I think there are big generational gaps, Sure. Uh, but for certain people watching actors behind their screens um, and talking to people behind their screens, it felt like um, we were all very lonely, <laughs> huh. which is, I don't think true. Like, you know, sociologists who study virtual, uh, virtual communities say that they are, they are as real as the, as the real physical communities that we can, uh, we can experience. Uh, people playing video games are um, in, in network are, are really a, a true community. And, uh, and they experience it that way. And they're not necessarily lonely because they're not with other physical bodies in space. And I think that, I mean, during this pandemic, it's, it's amazing the amount of reflections uh, I've, I've had on that. And I think everybody's had on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I always loved the theater because it was a communal space. And I think that it is super important to keep that alive, to all meet in the same space at the same time and to experience this rare thing in front of us. But I, I'm also really curious to see uh, what we can do with virtual space and the theater. Um, I think that, yeah. It's really compelling. It's really, really fascinating. And uh, ties in completely, you know, having this conversation with you now as you're sitting in Montreal and I'm sitting in London and, and yes. we're, we're talking through our screens. Yes. Like so many Zoom conversations in the past year, it, it, there are moments when it feels there's there's an energy which is which is akin to being in the same room as somebody. I must remember that when I worry about my 19-year-old constantly on his Xbox, swearing into his shouty box, as I call it, he, uh, that he's building his community too. And I love the idea of synthesizing that into theatres and into live audiences. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's funny, I think more than ever now we have to rethink community and democracy including this and uh i think that the the theater space should be a, a way more democratic space than it is now i think that if we say yeah physical community is important then we really have to live up to our word and kind of rethink what that means uh you know because that gives the the theatrical space uh, a responsibility that I think sometimes it doesn't live up to of inclusion, of accessibility, and all of those things. Right. Um, right. You know, the virtual world is uh, by default uh, potentially more inclusive. Uh, so, you know, I think that it, 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 the, the physical, the physical theatrical spaces have to have to learn from it, maybe potentially, or find inspiration there. That's a really galvanizing provocation. <laughs> yeah, but I'm fascinated. Before we talk about uh, Alapi, am I pronouncing that with any yep. proximity to the correct pronunciation? Totally. Yeah, okay. It's Alapi. Yeah. Alapi. The um, 
what because you you traveled the world with the shows with i show you toured europe uh, right. and we toured canada with siri which was actually a, a show where um i was alone on stage with siri uh and we were having this dialogue together um <laughs> that's uh that's a piece that we toured in rio in edinburgh uh in dublin Wow. Um, we went to Trinity College. That was amazing. That That's was so glorious. fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. We uh, we had a great time there, and um, and that was a piece that yes, it, it was um, about basically our because I was born from artificial insemination, okay. um, so it was kind of a quest of my my own programming through my DNA versus the programming of uh, of an AI of a device. Wow. And so it was uh, the two of us meeting and having conversations <laughs> and, you know, uh, kind of digging into, into that. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. What I'm interested in the, uh, the experience of touring a show, which is about the virtual space, touring mm -hmm. into a geographical, actual physical space mm -hmm. um, with a show that's built on an investigation of a virtual space. What did you learn from taking Siri to Dublin, taking it to Rio? What, what did you learn a lot from a, as a performer, as an artist, as a creative artist from touring? Something oh that's my God. in stock market conversations, mm. I think. Yeah, I learned so much. Um, I learned that audiences are so different. Like it's it's fascinating, you know. And sometimes we feel that yeah, what I'm creating is kind of it can appeal to lots of people, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unfortunately, we are so 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 tainted by our culture and by what we know, by what is familiar to us. And that yeah. is why innovation is so important because everybody needs innovation. Everybody needs to come out of the familiarity uh, right. because what is familiar is comfortable. And, and sometimes you see things that are, yeah, less familiar and you just, uh, you will um, feel a lot of rejection towards what you're, what you're, what you're seeing. And I think yeah. that that's why arts education is so important and giving people access to innovation is so important because if not, we're just recreating the same things over and over and over again because they feel familiar to yeah. us. Yeah, so, um, loops. Yeah, and of course I am, even though you know, I, I'm not conscious of it every day, I am a product of my culture. Like, yeah. So I create things that are also gonna speak to my culture. And then yeah. like in Rio, uh, what was interesting, it was kind of a political, I guess, um, realization is that we were invited by this really cool theater called Oi Futuro, which is a, they're a theater that are interested in new technologies. Um, and, uh, but, you know, contemporary theater in Rio, <laughs> like, you know, experimental contemporary theater, like, it's just, it's not really the thing. And it's not the thing. <laughs> that people on the street will be attracted to. <laughs> right. You know, you and, beach. <laughs> and, and, and in a way, I, I felt kind of bad while I was there. I was like, oh, here I am, you know, being invited as, a, as this cool Canadian artist, you know, with a huge budget, going there for a month, performing four times a week, rest of the time having fun, you know, and, uh, and not a lot of people are seeing the piece. 
And I'm actually talking to a few old privileged people there, but I am not talking to kind of my my fellow Brazilians. Um, And I felt a a little bad about that, you know, and I I think that we, as, as artists that are touring, we need to, we need to ask ourselves those questions. What is, uh, you know, I'm costing, like, this is costing a lot. Is this m- money used responsibly? Am I really, like, reaching an audience? Do, yeah. Will they care? Yeah. Or, or, or should we do something else? Um, you know, with Siri, it was quite fascinating to tour because every time we, we had to translate the piece. So we had to use another Siri. Um, hmm. And so we, um, we discovered that she had big differences between the cultures as well. <laughs> wow. Uh, some languages were more censored than others. Um, yeah, the English is the most censored, obviously, because the, the engineers are all anglophones. Well, mostly. So, uh, so in French, when we created it, there were lots of things that she was still saying regarding love, <laughs> regarding <laughs> you know things that she didn't say at all in English because they were trying not to be sued. Uh, I guess you know for Siri, someone falling in love with Siri or someone being shocked by what Siri said and stuff like that. So that was interesting. Touring the iShow was, was amazing. I mean, we, we toured in a lot of national stages in in France and the national stages, there's such incredible theaters in small towns, France that were created in in the sixties where they were like decentralized culture and we'll open these incredible theaters in small towns and give access to, to, to the people, you know, the, and I, I think that's great. I don't know, like in reality, I don't have the statistics. I, um, I don't know how, how well it truly works in reality, yeah. but it feels really good to, to be there. <laughs> it's a, really, it's a really big, interesting conversation in Britain at the moment as we come out of the pandemic and especially out yeah. the last kind of 10 years since the economic crash of 2008 is how we can decentralize theater and culture in the UK and open yes. theatres in Stoke or Middlesbrough or Dorset or, you know, in kind of towns and cities throughout the UK rather than focusing everything on London. And that would be amazing because but, but, when... Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it's just because when we went to Dublin yeah. uh, to Trinity College, mm. um, it, it was so great because the reason why we were able to go there was because there was a co-production between Trinity College, the theatre, and Accenture which is a high-tech uh, yeah. multinational yeah. <laughs> company. And um, so, and, and, and it was super cool for us. Like we, we spent our afternoon at Accenture speaking to uh, engineers who were actually building an assistant like Siri and discussing the oh. show and discussing our research. And they were so interested in all the data that we'd uh, accumulated over the years. And, um, and then we performed in front of those guys and in front of the general audience um, at night. But there was corporate money. And uh, I realized, because afterwards I was like, why can't we tour in the UK? Why, why, why? And people were saying, well, there's no money. Like, uh, there's no money to bring some, something from, like, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, the budget is maybe a thousand pounds. And with a thousand pounds a show, we, there's no way we can do the show. So I, I, I quickly realized, unfortunately, that the only place we could go to was London. And, uh, and, and then, well, London is a whole different ball game, yeah. you know, like, yeah. uh, so, so yeah, I was, I was surprised to see how, how different it was and how basically what Malraux did in France in the sixties of saying decentralized culture had a huge impact 
and it wasn't necessarily the case in in, in every country. The I, I the, the impulse to decentralize both politically, culturally, and geographically might be one of the impulses that underpins the thinking behind Alapi. Did you see what I did with that segue? <laughs> Woo! Great. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I, I was. Re- I think it's an extraordinary show, and uh, I wish I. I hope I get to see it in real life. But you saw you saw the filmed the poor yeah. filmed version that we did. I know. Like in this I super really tiny venue, really. I love the tiny venue. I thought the tiny venue was great. No, but I mean, okay, but I can't wait for you to see the film version that we're doing for the Stukemacht in, in Berlin. That's great. I can't wait to see it. I really look forward to that. Could you tell me about the starting point of it, how this show started? Oh, yeah. So this show started from a really naive place, <laughs> like maybe yeah. everything in a way. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I wanted to work with the medium of radio. I'm fascinated with sound work, um, but I don't have, I, I didn't have any experience in it. And I approached this woman, Marie-Laurence Rancourt, who started this, um, this uh, company called Magneto, and all they do is, is basically sound creation. Um, and uh, at the time, it was the 150th anniversary of Canada, um, which was a bit controversial because the First Nations there was like, what's that? Uh, so there were a lot of talks about about that, and of course we are we are in in the midst of having tons of conversations about decolonization, um, and and it's been happening for a while. It's extremely important, mm. and I've I've been seeing a lot of changes um, recently in the arts world because of that, and uh, the general conversations we're having about inclusion and diversity. So there is hope. Um, but yeah, Marie-Laurence and I were, this program for the 150th anniversary was called New Chapter. It was a program by the Canada Council for the Arts. And it basically encouraged artists to get out of their comfort zone and, and take risks and be ambitious. And it's, mm. it's weird that people tell you, be ambitious. You know, it's always, <laughs> what can I do with no money? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we were like, oh, what could we do? what could we research that we would never have access to usually? And we thought the North. Um, the North is almost inaccessible in a way for normal people, for right. civilians, um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's extremely expensive to go there. Is it? Um, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Extremely expensive. Usually there's not a lot of tourism there it's you know it's maybe three thousand dollar a plane ticket to get to the closest community and then you have oh. to you know there there's air canada goes to kujuak which is the closest community and then there's it doesn't go further so there's other there's other um companies that that go further but right. um you know the people who go up north are basically construction workers nurses and doctors yeah. Uh, some social workers. They're the people working there. They're not uh, yeah. just people who want to go. Uh, right. right. And there's, of course, the Inuit communities that live there and have lived there for a very long time who are yeah. nomadic, who were historically nomadic um, yeah. until the missionaries came. And huh. uh, set, then they became, they became sedentary and, uh, mm. and they, were, they, they became Christian. <laughs> By by the yeah uh, because because <laughs> that that was not the case um, 
And um, yeah, so it, for us just to think about the North was scary. And um, we really knew nothing about it, to be honest. And that's why I say it came from a lot of naivete. Yeah. Um, but I think, you, yeah, you always need a little bit of it, at least. Uh, yeah, but we, we, right. we, learned, we learned a ton. Um, how, long were first, you, how long were you up there for? How long were you so up there? I personally was never up there. Oh, how very virtual. Yeah, <laughs> That's um, quite cool, though. I was never up there because uh, the cost of living and to yeah. get there is so high that yeah. I, I couldn't really find a reason why uh, it would be acceptable for me to, to go just to kind of see things and hang out. Basically, sure. like Marie Laurence was the one who was doing... because. Uh, uh, the way Alapi works is that there was a sound, um, basically a podcast, a sound creation yeah. that was made. Um, and then around that, we built a play. So um, oh. all, all together, we, at the beginning of the process, we met with young Inuit uh, people who yeah. came down south to, to study. Uh, basically, after high school here, we have what we call Sejap which yeah. is between high school and university. So they came down here to, to do Sejap because there are none in the North. And right. um, they were mostly Francophones because most Inuit people speak English, um, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons. Right. But, uh, but, but these ones were, were Francophones. Oh. So, um, so, you know, five of them agreed to be part of the documentary and right. to kind of build this documentary with Marie yeah. Laurence. Yeah. And, um, and very early in the process, we realized that, you know, we asked ourselves, do we, can we do this? <laughs> like, are we as two white women, just uh, the, the right people to do this? And mm -hmm. are we even allowed to do this? It was during the whole scandal with Canada. Uh, and Robert Lepage's creation, Canada, which also involved some First Nations, and, and there was a, a big scandal around that. People what was the essence of the scandal? Okay. Yeah, some people felt yeah disrespected in the process. Uh, mm. Not uh, some people felt like they were take, taken into consideration. I okay. really I cannot talk about about this at all because I I don't know the details and. Uh, yeah, I, it's hard for me to take position. But what I heard, though, is that some people didn't feel considered right. and heard. Yeah. And so for us, it was like, OK, so what can we do? How can we think this process for everybody to feel like they're a part of this and they're being respected and heard sure. and met? And we're like, well, this needs to be a collective. We cannot it cannot, you know, be us, uh, our work. Um, and using these people's stories. This has to be a collective creation with these people. Right. So, and we need to find a way to reflect on what would it mean to work in a horizontal manner, uh, which is extremely you, difficult. By working in a horizontal manner, you mean trying to spread outwards to incorporate that collective, to make it more collective, yeah. Yeah, and like yeah. to be less hierarchical when right. it comes to you know yeah. decision making and sure. plans and the yeah. way of working and how you rehearse and stuff like that because mm -hmm. you're talking to people who are non-professional sometimes they're professional artists but not stage artists mm -hmm. theater is not a it's not a practice up north right. uh, it's not a traditional practice at all 
So there you are making theater down south with people from the north and like, yeah, how do you make this um, a positive experience for everyone? And we had tons of conversations like um, with the, when we were creating the piece. So after the sound documentary was made, uh, I started an exploration week with four actors Mm. um, and you know, some of them, like one of the actor that we were working with, they were all non-professionals. Um, he, he was living on the street, which is a reality for wow. a lot of Inuit people uh, that come down south. There's, there's a lot of social problems in the communities. There's a lot of addiction problems. There's a huge amount of trauma. We're talking about, a, about people who were either... Uh, in the in the 50 like between the 50s and the 70s if i'm correct mm-hmm. um they were taking the children were taken to uh boarding schools by force to be assimilated um so they would forget their language they would forget their culture they would forget oh. their family and they would sent be sent back into the family not knowing anything anymore and being then rejected by their own community like it's a huge amount of trauma yeah. we're talking also Maybe that started before the 50s. I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe even the 30s. And then we're talking also about, and that's all First Nations in Canada. That's not just Inuit. That's all mm-hmm. the First Nations in Canada. Now, when, that's why we say they went through a cultural genocide. Um, and then there was the 60s scoop. That's basically Inuit people would bring their children to hospitals uh, because they were sick. And then they'd go back the next day to pick them up and they were gone. Uh, they had been sent down south for adoption. <laughs> and that happened in the 60s. And that, so you can imagine what kind of trauma these communities have gone through. And it's, you know, they are slowly just starting to heal now. Um, and there are still lots and lots of issues. Uh, but Anyways, I, I think that, you know, the best would be to talk to a First Nations person or to an Inuit person to, mm. to give you all the details, um, yeah. you know, and I'm what we're trying to do with Alapi. We're not we're not here to talk about all of that because that's pretty um, that's kind of known to most Canadians. Like right. there are things that we hear a lot and there's a lot of guilt related to that and a, a lot of you know, Caucasian Canadians feel extremely guilty because of what happened to First Nations and what is still happening today. Yeah. And I think that guilt is a bit of a, it's a bit of a sterile feeling. Yeah. So my, <laughs> my goal, you know, is not to point fingers at every, at anyone and make them feel hopeless and kind of um, uh, frozen. Um, so with Alapi, what we tried to do was just to, create something together that was, um, how can I say, like a benevolent encounter. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do spoilers because uh, people may be listening to this before they watch the show on the, at the, at the, at the virtual Stuckmark, but um, the piece crystallizes in a beautiful, witty, elegant encounter. Um, that makes me think that you achieved you achieved what you aimed what you aimed to do. Uh, is it a show that's changing for you? Are you? I mean, not just for the Stuck Market, but um, it's been it's been two years alive in front of audiences. A year a year in front of audiences now. Uh, uh, I think we created it in 
2019, at the beginning of okay. 2019. All right, so two years now. Is it something that's in development every time that you're performing it? Does it shift and change with each iteration or, or are you confident with it, its stability now? It's pretty stable, although, um, you know, we are changing actresses. Uh, often (laughs) also because they're non-professional actresses so they have their lives um you know hannah uh who created the show is not with us anymore she was you know a full-time student a mother of two Mm. um she was herself quite young and it it just wasn't sustainable for her so Mm. olivia replaced her so the one that will be seen at the stukamak will be with nancy saunders and olivia uviluk Um, And then in the future, we're we're also performing at FTA in Montreal in in May. And that will be another actress replacing Nancy because Nancy's in Nunavik right now in northern Quebec, uh, helping out her dad with his restaurants. The pandemic's been hard for everyone. So uh, she cannot come back to Montreal and go back and quarantine 14 days every time. It's a bit complicated for her. So we're having a new actress on board. So, of course, every time there are new performers, it changes uh, quite a lot, but uh, but no, the content is, is is pretty stable. I'm I'm really happy with the show. It's a really beautiful piece of work. The um when when you look at the different pieces you've made and the, the music that you've made uh, included in that, do you do you kind of find shared investigations? Are there recurring themes in the kind of the 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 imaginative world of Laurence Dauphiné? Are there things you <laughs> consciously going back to? I don't know if I'm consciously going back to things because often what I, but of course I go back to things just like any, any creator, you know, it's, but um, what I feel um, is that I feel there are holes uh, in the culture, things that we either don't talk about or that are um, kind of mysterious. And I feel like I want to dig and fill those holes with my work that's kind of how i feel so basically a desire for a project will come when i feel like it's it's um not talked about uh that it's uh under known yeah um and that's that's when i i want to go there so it's kind of the only thing i can i can say that i'm conscious of and you you're still in montreal yes and uh, do you, and uh, what does the city give you as a creative artist? What is it about Montreal that's kept you there? Mm. I think Montreal is hard to beat <laughs> when it comes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, um, it's great quality of life. Uh, right. It's kind of a human scale city. Yeah, it, three million people. Um, not not too big it's kind of the minimum i can do personally mm. <laughs> I, I like big cities yeah uh but you know montreal gives you that the the fact that we are in kind of an insular culture and that quebec is that majority of francophone the only uh, officially francophone province in canada um there has been always this kind of um care about preserving culture and language Mm. and there's a lot more investment in culture and language than anywhere else in Canada when I talk to artists uh in Ontario like friends they're so jealous of all the programs we've had like the state Mm. basically invests three times more money than in the rest of of the provinces so um 
So we are very lucky that way. And there is a ton of new, uh, new work being done in Montreal. When I said that I, I didn't do <laughs> classics in the end at all. I mean, there are classics around, but the reality is that what is around all the time is new work. It's new work, it's work being created. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. So I found a community in, this, in the theatrical community of Montreal. I can say that. I, can, mm. I, feel, um, I feel inspired by people. I am, um, I am in narrative of, of people, of some artists here very much. Um, yeah. I trust the institutions, not all of them, but yeah. a lot of them. Yeah, which is um, no, no small thing in, in no, artistic life. Yeah, absolutely, it's very yeah. big. A lot of the theaters have spaces for emerging artists. Yeah, there quite. are some institutions that are only for emerging artists. So, yeah. I feel very lucky. Um, there's also something here that uh, that is interesting: is that artists can do can use lots of different mediums at once. Right, um, you can uh, be a theater maker and be on TV and also do voice work and dubbing from English to French. And so people are kind of always doing all these things. And I, I really like that. Um, yeah. I like to be multitasking and, and that's really manifest different mediums. That's really in your work, right? I mean, that, you know, the, the plurality and diversity of different media you're working with is, is yeah. really exciting and really legible. And I collab- feel like uh, I get, I get better. Uh, I, I become a better writer with every new medium that I learn, it teaches me a lot about storytelling. The, um, and collaboration, you know, you're very generous when you talk about Alapi and and I love the notion of horizontal creativity and horizontal rehearsal rooms or horizontal processes, but everything that you've made, everything that you've talked about, um, your collaborators seem completely central to the creative process. Mm Absolutely. Do you make anything alone or is it, are you complete? Are you, uh, or do you just cherish that communication so much mm. that you, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to give it up? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I make some things alone, but you're right. Like that's not the majority of my work at all. Um, maybe because I felt alone so much in my life, you know, like I really, <laughs> I really did feel alone for the most part of, of me growing up. Mm. I felt tremendously alone mm. and when I found, <laughs> found finally this this community I mean it's not a big mm. gang it's a small gang you know I have <laughs> I have mostly Maxime Carbonneau who's, who's my collaborator on so many different projects in the cloud and Siri mm. and we're developing a tv series together and a new media series together we're together all the time um, that collaboration is super super precious to me and other yes other collaborations like with Marie-Laurence Franco-Ronalapi with these incredible um, actresses that are teaching me so much um, and, and with Derek as well sorry and with the music the, oh the- yes <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, music, it's, that's funny because when I was younger, uh, I, I studied classical singing for so, so, so many years. Yeah. And I was really hesitant. Will I become an opera singer or will I go into the theater? And um, I ended up choosing theater because it felt like it was less elitist. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, but I've always adored uh, singing and, and music and, and composing, but I'm not a great musician. Um, so I work with good musicians. Um, yeah, Derek is a, is a beautiful music project, but it's, it's the kind of thing like 
we have no time for it right now. So it's always kind of at the margins of our lives. And sometimes we go back to it. Uh, but yeah, life is so, so, so full with every other thing. So music always comes second. But it's, um, it's, a, good, it's a good place for, uh, for exploration and interiority. And yeah, uh, and yeah working with great musicians, uh, it's the same with uh, Agringa, which is the crazy music project I do in Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> inspired by my many times in Brazil. Um, but yeah, I worked with some incredible DJs there in, in, so in Rio. And uh, it's always so thrilling to do that, to really share forces. The, um, I'm thinking uh, about how you describe Montreal as being very human in its scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can relate to that in cities that I love I find that in kind of Amsterdam, maybe, or, you know, something that's often said about Amsterdam, we'll find it a little bit in Barcelona, even. Um, Lisbon. Certainly in, yeah, Lisbon, for sure. Um, and then thinking as well, I, I, I know you were, you were quite uh, uh, not disparaging, but kind of you weren't a massive fan of the video that I watched of Alapi. But I thought I, I thought the size of that theatre and the presence of that audience was profoundly human in itself. I actually really loved it when I could hear people laughing on the camera two inches away, and then the guy who stood up on his own at the end. I think it's a, and that whole show has a great humanness to it. It feels like a deeply human uh, exploration of humanity. Um, and then comparing that to your exploration of artificial intelligence and wondering if there's any kind of like contradiction there or if you're inspired, how optimistic do you feel about the future of humanness in a world <laughs> of artificial intelligence as we come out of this pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> well, just like um, our Maxime Carbonneau's and I's reflection on, on AI, because we've been doing most of our, our work about that together, mm. um, we're our, our, when we do work about anything, it's never to just praise it. It's to, it's to bring a, a critical eye uh, yeah. on it. And, you know, we, we felt that AI was going to change everyone's lives, but nobody really talked about it right. <laughs> like five years ago. Right. And, and, you know, Montreal was slowly becoming the second hub of AI in North America after Silicon Valley. Mm. And it was kind of like, Know, under the radar for most people mm. and so we decided to really to really dive in and see what what does this mean having all of a sudden an assistant in your pocket that is basically listening to you all the time that knows so much about you that can geolocalize you and that sells all your data by the way because people didn't know that either mm. um you know so we we want to dig into the topic not to scare people off but to maybe be to, to be critical and to raise a lot of questions that can then allow us to make decisions like uh, yeah. as a society. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen, I am, I am scared sometimes that the policies won't come soon enough because what we've been seeing with technology is basically the multi-billion companies doing whatever they want until the governments realize what our, uh, what are the consequences to that? And then they start building policy. But I feel yeah. like sometimes the populations, uh, they're a bit like guinea pigs. And, yeah. and until we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, they're all becoming completely anxious on social networks and comparing themselves. And the level of, let's say, anorexia is going up in girls right. and level of suicides is going up. So what do we do now? But 
But what about this sacrifice generation? Um, I, I, I find that a little sad. I'm, I'm conscious though, I'm, I am confident though that, the, that it will become more ethical because I think it's the, it's the only way to go. I don't think that the world would survive a non-ethical approach to those new technologies. But people have to be conscious that it will change everything uh, about at a very exponential. How do you say that? Exponential. Exponential. Yeah, exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like rapid pace. Uh, you know, like we we've seen the curves, <laughs> the yeah. curves of you know technological advancement, and it's uh, it's gonna it's gonna be fast, but at but you know, so I am. What can I say? I am not necessarily an enthusiast, but I am not depressed either. I right. think I'm a realist, yeah. and I think some developments in technology excite me very much. Some don't. Mm-hmm. But I think that our responsibility is to, and as artists particularly, um, is is to is to be able to talk about them and to bring them bring those questions to the people yeah. in a I, in a human way. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love uh, I I I love the possibility that the storytellers might act as some kind of like uh, ethical kind of guide stone or guide you know guide as we kind of try try and navigate this new technology. Yeah. I mean, being born from artificial insemination, I am uh, basically a child of technology. You know, <laughs> if, if you look at it, <laughs> yeah, right. You right. know, my existence wouldn't have been possible without modern medicine. Yeah. Uh, well, mysomanals, like, because, yeah. you know, they've been doing artificial insemination for a long time, kind of under the radar, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but, you know, so in a, and when I was in high school, I remember we were in a, like this, I was in a Catholic college and in this religion class, we were talking about uh, certain ethical questions that people had homosexuality and all that. And that, you know, people were for, hadn't, didn't have problems about anything except for uh, artificial insemination or assisted procreation. And, you know, that made me feel terrible, obviously. <laughs> and and I, I remember you know, going to my teacher and say, oh, look, I, I, I have a friend who was born from uh, artificial insemination and maybe you should be careful because that could hurt people. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is being said in this class. Um, but yeah, so in a way it's like um, I am... And that's something that would touch me so much when I would read Simone de Beauvoir. She has such an incredible reflection on what is natural. Right. And, you know, for so many years, we saw natural in women as, well, women have to make babies. That's natural. Parentality is natural. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and medicine was like artificial and technology was artificial. I don't agree with that. I think that the development of technology is actually the natural way of going for us. It is, it is the way. We have built tools since the beginning to make our yeah. lives easier, yeah. to make it easier in our bodies because life was so hard. Technology is the continuation of that, of our, it's the continuation of the expression of our knowledge. And it, it is for sure something that will help us fight climate change. So, um, you know, but we just have to be intelligent about it and not, not basically um, hear all the greenwashing that uh, the corporations are doing now and selling us these new technologies, cut old trees because that will be good for climate change. All that bullshit. No, we have to remain critical with what is being offered and we have to ask the corporations to live up to some form of ethics, which is tough because, you know, 
they have to please their stockholders. <laughs> <laughs> the um, talking to you, the um, you know, my faith in the possibility of the artists, of the storytellers, of the creators to help kind of hold our hand and navigate that ethical chaos of contradiction um, is restored. <laughs> I, re- I really, I, I, I really love talking to you and I really loved your work. I can't wait to see Alapi again when it goes up. When, when, when are you going up? When's your opening night at the Stuckmark? Uh, it's the 18th of May. And is the show, are you, are you tailoring the show? Are you performing the show in Montreal and it's going to be filmed and it's being performed with a view of being put on the, on, onto the, onto the website at Stuckmark? Yeah, it was, yeah. it was filmed already, actually. Great. Okay. Uh, um, I just finished editing last night. Okay, uh, cool. We, yeah, we, we did that uh, in not a live stream version because of the COVID scare. You sure. know, we were all scared, like, what if, what if, yeah. what if? Yeah. So it was just safer that way. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, Alapi being such a contemplative show, it was really interesting, like the yeah. work that we had to do with the cameras uh, to accompany that contemplation and to accompany the, the act of listening and, oh, and the beautiful. silences and the sounds. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's going to be very different than what you saw, but I think it really, I think it serves the piece. And uh, I think that the surprise you were talking about at the end is, is kept intact. Oh, that's good. That's good. I can't, I really can't wait to see it again. And uh, I hope our paths cross in real life one day. It's an absolute oh, pleasure too, to meet thank you. you. Laurence Dauphiné, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to a special episode of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt 2020-21 at the Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. It was produced by Emily Legg and Anushka Warden for the Royal Court Theatre. All five of the pieces talked about on this series, the five shows selected by the jurors of this year's Stuckermarkt, are available online at the Theatre Treffen website from the 18th of May 2021. There's a link for the website on the show notes. The music for this series was by and given with permission from the brilliant Derek. Derek.